We're nearing the end of our walk through the, the Joseph story, including this morning. There are three messages left in this series. They'll be broken up over the next couple of weeks by Easter, and then one Sunday late in April, I will be out of town, and so we'll have somebody else in the pulpit. But three messages left, so we're almost there. God's covenant with Abraham that the story of Genesis is telling, God's covenant with Abraham contained promises both of Abraham's blessing and his blessing of others. If you were to look back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, where God first introduces himself, as it were, to Abram, calling him to leave his home and his family and go to a land that I will show you, he said. In Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, he said this, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from the start of the Bible's big story, you can see that God's intention is both to bless his people with his presence, his provision, his peace, and to extend his blessing through them to the world. This has always been God's purpose. In our passage today, Genesis 47, verses, verse 13 through the end of the chapter, not quite the end of the chapter, through verse 28, we see both of these things happening very clearly. Both elements of the Abrahamic covenant unfolding in real time, as it were, before our eyes, as the story of Joseph's career as a governor in Egypt begins to wind down. But they occur in reverse order, uh, under two big narrative headings. So the first of these would be something like, Joseph saves the world. That sounds dramatic, and it is verses 13 through 26, and then secondly, just a little short paragraph on the tail end of this passage, Israel multiplies in Goshen, which is a, a land inside of Egypt, verses 27 28. So those are the two big headings, uh, narratively speaking, that the, the passage breaks down into. And so the first of those is, is the backside of that Abrahamic covenant, the, the blessing of God extended to the world, and the bulk of the passage actually resides right there, with Joseph in his role as a governor in Egypt, saving those under his care. Let's read verses 13 through 26. We'll just read this whole uh, passage, and then we'll uh, draw out some important observations and, and see what the Lord has for us here. Beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they, had bought, that they bought. Then Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. 
And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. We're going to pause there. So clearly the, the details of this passage are about Joseph's economic policy, as it were. How he engages with the struggling, starving Egyptian citizens who come to him pleading for help. But to put the economic policy in context, I want you to look back just a couple of verses from where we started. Back in verse 7, this is when Jacob and his sons had just arrived in Goshen and kind of pitched their tents there, and Joseph is bringing his brothers before Pharaoh, and now his father, Jacob, before Pharaoh. And in verse 7, when Jacob enters the presence of Pharaoh, look at what it says. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And we talked about this last week, drew this out, the significance of how typically, culturally speaking, the greater would bless the lesser. And here we have the, the patriarch of this tiny family, really, only 70 descendants to his name, pronouncing blessing upon the leader of this world superpower, the Pharaoh of Egypt. But in God's eyes, that is exactly right. This is his covenant people. It is Jacob and his descendants who have God's presence and promised blessing upon them. And he does it again down in verse 10. So his meeting with Pharaoh began with blessing Pharaoh. And then verse 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And so the patriarch of God's covenant nation, Israel, pronounces divine blessing upon the ruler of the world's superpower, Egypt. And in that we see Yahweh, through Abraham's seed, is blessing the nations. That second half of the Abrahamic covenant, I will bless you and through you I will bless the nations. That was the, the two sides of the coin of Abraham's covenant. Here we see Jacob pronouncing that blessing. And then, immediately after that happens, we are given a glimpse of that blessing practically demonstrated in the role that Joseph, the son of Jacob, the great-grandson of Abraham, plays in providing food and seed 
to the citizens of Egypt who would otherwise starve. And even more specifically, we see the fulfillment of that last clause of the covenant, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Egypt's ruler, to this point, somewhat out of character for what we might expect from the ruler of Egypt, has certainly blessed Abraham in the favor that he has shown to Joseph and his family. So Yahweh keeps his word even in this regard, that Egypt will be blessed by Yahweh's provision since Egypt's leader has blessed Abraham's seed. So that's the context for this economic policy detail that we get in the middle of chapter 47. Without that context, it's a little strange that we would have this much explained about how Joseph interacts with and provides for the people of Egypt. The point is, Moses, who's writing this book, wants us to see that what Joseph is doing in his engagement with the Egyptians who need help is fulfilling, actually living out the blessing that his father Jacob had just pronounced upon Pharaoh. So that's the context for this, uh, this economic thing that's going on as the people come to him and, and there's this back and forth kind of year by year. So the policy itself, the broad outlines of it, the first step is that the people uh, buy grain from Joseph until their money is all spent. As we're told in verses 14 and 15, they ran out of money. Joseph had collected all of the money and put it into Pharaoh's house, right? So there's none left. And this famine is still going on, and it is very severe. We're told that more than one time in this passage. And so the people, without any money, come back to Joseph and say, we need more food, but we don't have any money to buy it. And so Joseph, in the second step of this policy, offers to trade them food for their livestock. Now listen, their livestock were going to die, right? They, they had no food. They, there was no crop for them to eat. So the, the livestock were just going to languish in their possession until they died anyway. And so Joseph takes all of this dying livestock off their hands and gives them in return food that will sustain them for, it looks like, another year. And then we're told that the end of that year, when the food had run out, the people come back again to Joseph. And this time they come with an idea. They, the first time, they just said, we're out of money, we don't know what to do. And Joseph offered, if you'll sell me your livestock, I'll give you the food. But now they come to him and they say, our money is gone, and you already have all of our livestock. The only resources we have left is our land and our labor. So take them. So the people offer to Joseph, we will be servants to Pharaoh in exchange for, and they ask for two things, actually, food and Seed, which might imply that we're nearing the tail end of this famine, perhaps that five-year period. It was a seven-year famine. Joseph's brothers came to him two years into it, and he had told them earlier, there's five years yet remaining in the famine. So perhaps we're nearing the end of that period of time. The fact that there is seed to be sown, and there's even talk of sowing and reaping and, and harvesting and all this, but they say, give us food and give us seed that we may sow and that the land may not be desolate. And so Joseph agrees, right? So the people become debt servants to Pharaoh in exchange for food and seed. And then the last sort of detail of this economic policy that we're told is that Joseph allows the people to keep four-fifths of whatever they harvest 
in the future. So the land belongs to Pharaoh. You're going to work the land as farmers, and one-fifth of what you produce you will give to Pharaoh as a, as a sort of tax, right? So that's the, the policy, basically. And so the people are now working for their food, right? So it's not, it's, it's not something for nothing. It's they're, they're working in exchange for their livelihood here, obviously overseen by a, a government official in this sense. Now, there are scholars and commentators who read this and charge Joseph with oppressing the Egyptians, enslaving the Egyptians. And so they, there's this contrast that some, some commentators will point out. Well, he's very generous with his own family, but then when the Egyptians come to him, he takes all of their livestock, and he takes all of their land, and he makes them slaves, and how could he be such a tyrant? I don't think that's a fair reading of what's going on here, and I'm going to give you a few reasons why. I say, no, Joseph is not oppressing the Egyptians in this for five reasons. Number one, just the most obvious fact on the face of this, Joseph keeps the people alive, all right, by providing them food when their resources have dwindled down to nothing. So without Joseph's intervention, they would be dead. So there's number one. Number two, this debt slavery thing, this we will enter the service of Pharaoh and uh, and, and give him you know, from our land just so that we can have food to eat, is the people's idea, not Joseph's demand. If they had come to him and said, what can we do, and he enslaved them as his idea, then maybe we could say, that seems a little bit of a harsh policy. But it's their idea, in fact, their request, please make us servants to Pharaoh. And he agreed, all right? So that's, that's the second reason I don't see Joseph as a, a oppressive or a tyrant here. Number three, and this is significant, I think, the people's own assessment of Joseph. What do they say to him? You have saved our lives, right? They don't go, oh my goodness, this harsh taskmaster, how could he possibly do this to us? They are grateful. They recognize Joseph's generous provision for them when they were utterly destitute and desperate. And so the people are praising Joseph for his generosity to them and his wisdom in providing throughout this famine. A fourth reason is, Genesis, is Joseph's generous provision of four-fifths of the land's future harvest. Remember, this land now belongs to Pharaoh. Give me your land, and I'll give you food. And so he could easily require significantly more than the 20% tax that he places upon them, right? So he could have said, you give us four-fifths, and you can live off of the 20% of the crop that remains. But he gives them the opposite. This is Pharaoh's land now, legally speaking, but you get to keep 80% of what the land produces, and only 20% of it will be given as a tax. And so it's really, honestly, more generous of a policy than it has to be. And perhaps a less scrupulous leader would have taken even more from the Egyptians. The fifth reason and the biggest reason and the most important reason that I reject the notion that Joseph is, is uh, oppressively enslaving the Egyptians here is simply the context and themes of the book of Genesis. Joseph is consistently depicted. We met him back in chapter 37, and throughout this time, he has been depicted as a righteous man and as Yahweh's instrument of provision, both for his own family and 
for the Egyptians. He, Joseph is the faithful seed, right? He's where we're seeing that promised seed of Abraham and the blessing to the family and the blessing to the nations unfolding in the course of all of this drama. And so Joseph is faithful and righteous. This would be very out of character for Joseph to suddenly become an, an oppressor and a tyrant to the Egyptians. Indeed, Joseph is even frequently in these, this story a picture of Christ himself. The son beloved by his father but rejected by his brothers who ascends the throne as an unexpected ruler and makes provision for his people. This is the arc of Joseph's narrative and that in every way mirrors, foreshadows the work of Christ himself. Beloved by his father, he came to his own and his own did not receive him, we're told in John 1. Rejected by his people, became the king that the people were not looking for. We thought we were going to get a military conquering hero and instead we got a suffering crucified Messiah. And yet in that suffering and death and his resurrection, he makes provision for his people. So it would definitely be out of sync with his role, with Joseph's role as a type, a picture of Christ to be found oppressing the starving Egyptians here. And then, again, as I mentioned earlier, there's the immediate context. Joseph's provision of food for the Egyptians is situated immediately after Jacob's pronouncement of divine blessing upon Pharaoh. It would be strange indeed for Moses to show us Jacob pronouncing blessing and then immediately show us Jacob's son Joseph cursing the Egyptians rather than blessing them. And so for all of these reasons, I, I, I think what we see in Joseph is a faithful, righteous, good, honorable ruler. We see one who is using the resources at his disposal to bless the people under his charge in a horrible situation. This famine is severe, and the, the nation of Egypt in broad strokes will die if he doesn't intervene, and intervene, he does. Jim Hamilton summarizes the, the theological theme portrayed in this narrative section this way. Joseph, the seed of Abraham, is rescuing the Egyptians, not the other way around. Again, a, a casual reader might expect that the mighty Egyptians would have to come to the aid of this small, struggling family who's settled in the land of Goshen, but it's exactly the opposite. It is God's man. It is the covenant seed of Abraham who is now blessing and indeed rescuing the people of Egypt. And so, just to wrap this part all up, what we see here is the fulfillment, or a fulfillment, of the Abrahamic covenant in the extending of divine blessing to the nations. Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Joseph saves the land of Egypt. And this is what God has always intended for his people, and indeed it is what he intends for his church today. God's people are to be a preserving agent of God's grace to the world. He told Israel back in Jeremiah 29 when they were in exile in Babylon, so they had been captured and taken away to this hostile pagan city, and what God said to them was not, burn it down and fight back and, and get your freedom. What he said was, seek the welfare of the city. 
Because in its welfare, you'll find, you'll find your welfare. Right? He tells them, plant trees, build houses, have kids, like live your life, invest in things in this place, in this community, because it will flourish. And since you're living there among them, you will flourish by extension. And so God has in mind for his people to bless the surrounding nations where they live, even the pagan ones, even the ones that are not honoring to him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle tells us to keep our conduct pure among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's a way that we're supposed to live in the presence of the world that points people toward those deeper, greater realities of God and his kingdom. We are called to serve as ambassadors in this world of Christ's kingdom. That is what the church is. And as members of the church, you individually are citizens in that kingdom, ambassadors for that kingdom. So we ought to have our eye on how we might extend the blessing of God's faithfulness and covenant love to the world around us. As a Jason Gray song from a few years ago says, God put a million doors in the world for his love to walk through, and one of those doors is you. It's a good way to think about it. Joseph saves the world, extending the covenant blessing of God in the family of Abraham to the nations. And then the passage gives us these couple of verses wrapping up or summarizing, really, uh, Jacob's time in Egypt in verses 27 and 28. Let's look at these two verses and see what the Lord would have for us here. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. So, this sort of concludes the whole Joseph rising to power and the brothers and their reconciliation and then the famine and all of that. That all ends right here. So when the narrative picks up in verse 29, we have fast-forwarded 17 years to where Jacob is about to die. So what we'll look at next time is really chapters 48 and 49. It's sort of Jacob's deathbed blessings upon all of his sons. But so the story that we've been seeing that's taking place in the midst of this famine comes to a conclusion right here. And the summary is that Jacob, uh, or that Israel settled in the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen. And remember, Goshen is a part of or a region within the, the empire of Egypt and so they settled there. This is how, right? Thus they settled in the land of Egypt. And then we get the summary statement. They gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. They gained possessions in it. And they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And I want to point out to you here some more connections, allusions to earlier passages in Genesis. Hearkening back even before the Abrahamic covenant. The phrase fruitful and multiply should make you think of God's creation mandate to Adam and Eve. He had created the world. 
He had made Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden, and he gave them this charge. Be fruitful and multiply, have dominion, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. So that was the command to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, those very phrases, those very words. That phrase or, comp- or, or, or versions of it, one word or the other, being fruitful or multiplying or those things together, occur 11 other times in the book of Genesis. And always, either as a command, like to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, or as a promise, as in to Abraham, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. So every other time of the 11 times that this, this, these words, be fruitful and multiply, are used, they are either a command or a promise. This is the only indicative use of the phrase anywhere in Genesis. That is just a statement of what is, a statement of fact. So when he says... They were fruitful and multiplied. The command to Adam and Eve in the garden and the promises repeated to the patriarchs and Abraham's family are finally beginning to find their fulfillment at the conclusion of the book of Genesis under the leadership and agency of Joseph, the once rejected son. Not be fruitful and multiply, not I will make you fruitful and multiply you, but Israel was fruitful and multiplied greatly. Sam Awadi says, What began as a command to Abraham transformed into a promise. Excuse me, let me start that over. What began as a command to Adam transformed into a promise to Abraham and has now become a reality under Joseph. So this is the summary of the life of Israel in Egypt up until the end of Jacob's life. They settled in the land, they gained much possessions, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. A fulfillment, not a complete fulfillment to be sure, but the beginnings of the fulfillment of those commands and promises, be fruitful and multiply. We are seeing God keep his word. The covenant family is growing. They are being fruitful. They are multiplying. We're told Jacob lived there 17 years for a total lifespan of 147 years. And I would just want to point out here that Jacob had 17 years with Joseph at home before he had been sent to Egypt by Yahweh. And he has 17 years with Joseph in Egypt before Yahweh closes his eyes in death. So just something sweet about the kindness of God there and giving another 17 years with Jacob and his beloved son before he passes. Another thing to observe here in these two short verses is the stark contrast between Egypt's struggle and Israel's prosperity. They gained possessions. They were fruitful and multiplied. While the Egyptians are struggling and starving and seeking out sort of desperate measures of help, right? Now, it's true that Joseph's economic policies extended Yahweh's blessing to the nations, keeping the Egyptians alive, and so we're not negating that at all. But this is also a desperate situation. 
The Egyptians' predicament is dire, and they rely upon drastic measures to survive starvation. That is the quality of life, so to speak, among the Egyptians at this time. Meanwhile, Israel settles, gains possession, and is fruitful and multiplying all the while, all while the fierce famine rages on for five more years in Egypt. So even while Egypt, the mighty, prestigious, wealthy power of the world, is languishing in hunger, struggling to survive, the family of Abraham, God's covenant people, are prospering in Goshen. God causes his people to flourish in the face of suffering and hardship. A quick walk through the Bible and even a survey of Christian history would tell the same story. God's people are preserved and thrive amid the hardships and even persecutions of the world around them. The blessing of Yahweh, you see, is found within his covenant people. Toiling feverishly out in the world will not evoke blessing and prosperity from Yahweh's hand. God's blessing and provision are experienced within his covenant nation by those who align themselves with Christ's kingdom by faith. And the prosperity, let me say this too, the prosperity promised to God's people, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, is not inherently a material financial prosperity. It's more than that. It's the deeper prosperity of God's shalom, his covenant peace and blessing in the hearts and lives of his church, even as he continues to unfold his promises of a future eternal flourishing in the new creation. God blesses his people, is present with his people, shows them his favor and kindness and cultivates their peace and their prosperity even amid the flailing and the struggling of the world around. So that we might say along with the hymnist, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance, now and always. Well, the blessing of Yahweh extended to the nations through his covenant seed in Abraham's family is poignantly fulfilled in Joseph's wisdom and generosity toward the Egyptians in Genesis 47. But the fulfillment it reveals is only partial. Joseph's role as an agent of divine blessing to the nations is itself a foreshadowing of a greater, richer blessing that would be bestowed on the world in the person and work of Abraham's ultimate offspring, Jesus Christ. God's covenant promises now belong not to those who can trace their physical lineage to Abraham, but to those who become his children by faith in Abraham's promised seed, Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles those who were far off and those who were near, Ephesians 2 says, are welcomed into the family of God and made recipients of all the covenant blessings of Yahweh. Not by virtue of having been born of the flesh as a descendant of Abraham, but by virtue of having been born again by the Spirit of God. 
Jesus once told a Jewish religious leader in his day that in order to be part of God's kingdom, he had to be born again. The leader was understandably confused, wondering how a person could possibly enter his mother's womb a second time and and be born again. But of course, Jesus wasn't referring to physical birth, but to spiritual birth. Those who are born again by the Spirit of God have been made to see their sinfulness. They've come to realize their need for divine intervention, a rescuer. And they've become convinced that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the rescuer that God has provided. Jesus went on to tell this religious leader in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The blessing of God extended to Egypt through Joseph's governance during a time of famine is available to its fullest possible extent to anyone from any nation who will trust in Jesus Christ. If you will turn to Jesus in faith, you too may join the chorus of sinners who have been redeemed by his death and resurrection who were once languishing in spiritual famine declaring now with grateful voice, you have saved our lives. Let's pray together.